Tonight is called Unleashing the Power Within. There was a rabbi who was cleaning out the closet in his house. And he finds a box on the top shelf. He had never seen the box before. And he reaches for the box and his wife screams, No, 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 don't open the box. Don't touch it. It's my private box. Don't touch the box. Private box? Since when do you have a private box? Because you have to promise me one thing, that you'll never open the box. Okay, fine, fine. No problem. If it's so important to you, I'll, I won't open the box. I'll leave it. Of course, the first time his wife leaves the house, <laughs> curiosity overtakes him. My wife keeping secrets from me. What could be in the box? So curious. He goes to the closet. He pulls out the box. He opens it. You know what he finds inside? He finds three eggs and a thousand dollars. What's so private about three eggs and a thousand dollars? So his wife comes home and says, My wife, I must ask for forgiveness. I violated my promise. I opened the box. But what's so bad about what's inside the box? What's so secretive? She says, Now that you know what's inside, let me explain. Every time you gave a long and boring sermon, I put an egg in the box. Wow. My dear wife, that's the greatest compliment. I've been a rabbi for 25 years, and in 25 years, only three eggs. Wow. It's my dear husband. Every time I had a dozen eggs, I sold it for a dollar. Lady went to the hairdresser to get styled before she went on vacation. So, where are you going? Going to Rome. Why would you want to go to Rome? The hairdresser says. Which airline are you taking? Taking United. Why would anyone want to take United? They're never on time. The planes are old. It's decrepit. Who takes United? Where are you going to stay when you get there? Oh, we're staying at the Hyatt, right on the river. It's so nice, I hear. Who stays in the Hyatt at the river? It's overrated, the rooms smell. Why would anyone want to stay there? It's a terrible, disgusting, decrepit place. This is crazy. Okay, what are you planning to do when you get to Rome? Well, we're going to the Vatican to see the Pope. See the Pope. There's going to be a million people there. That's why you're going to Rome? Wow, how are you going to see the Pope? Months go by, she goes back to the hairdresser. So, how was Rome? The hairdresser asks. Actually, it was fabulous. For starters, the United flight was on time, and it happened to be a brand new plane. The plane was so beautiful, and the plane was also overbooked. So they bumped <coughs> us up to first class. It was an incredible flight. Then we got to the hotel, and guess what? It was the first day after the reopening of a $10 million renovation. Pretty good, pretty good. They were overbooked. They bumped us up to the presidential suite. Let me tell you, it was an experience of a lifetime. Yeah, the Pope. You saw the Pope? Right, you saw the Pope. So actually, 
we go to Vatican Square and we get a tap on the shoulder from one of the guards. And the guard said, every so often, the Pope sees ordinary people. Would you like to volunteer for the Pope to see? They bring us into the Vatican, they bring us into the Pope's chambers, and there's the Pope. She says, what did the Pope say? What did the Pope tell you? She says, what kind of terrible hairdo do you have? Who did that hairdo? <laughs> okay, sorry. Yeah? I want to start off tonight's discussion, talk, experience with a story. I believe it's a story that I've told before, but I'll tell it again. A story of a stone cutter. A simple stone cutter. It was his job to climb the mountain and cut the stones. It was a hard job. And the sun baked on him all day. One day, he looks into the valley and he sees a king being carried on a throne through the valley. It's not fair, he says. I work so hard, chopping those stones, baking away in the sun. And look at that king being carried around the throne. Life is not fair. I want to be a king. And poof, there he is. He's a king. Being carried away by the servants on the throne. It's a miracle. All day he's carried away exactly what he always wanted. But as he's being carried, the sun is baking down on him and he's getting very hot. And he said to himself, it's not fair. Life's not fair. How can something be more powerful than I, the great and mighty king? How can the sun be more powerful than I? I wish I were the sun. Poof. And there he was. The story I heard as a child. He was the sun. All day he was so happy, shining so bright. Looking down at the world, life was perfect. But one day, as he was shining, the clouds came and blocked his view. And he thinks to himself, I'm such a powerful son, but look at these little clouds. They can just come and block my view and, 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 and ruin the whole thing. The clouds are more powerful. I wish I was the clouds. And guess what? Poof, he was the clouds. Yeah, he loved being the clouds. He blocked the sun. He was having a great time running around from place to place, blocking the rays, doing, having a whole party. Till one day, he realized that the way he got around was from the wind. The wind blew him. It's not fair. I have no control over my own destiny. Life is not fair. I want to be the wind. Then I can really have fun. I can go blowing around, having a great time, having a party. I wish I was the wind. Poof, he became the wind. And he's blowing everything around and he's having a grand old time until he comes to a mountain. And he tries to blow the mountain to no avail. He blows and blows and blows and the mountain is not moving. He said, what kind of thing is this mountain? It's not fair. Life's not fair. 
I want to blow the mountain. The mountain is stronger than me. I want to be a mountain. And poof, he becomes the mountain. Enjoying life so good. You can see down below. He's solid. He's stable. He's strong. And all of a sudden, he starts getting a little itch in his ear. Something's poking at him and prying at him. And he looks up, and he sees a little stone cutter. And he says, who's disturbing my slumber? He thinks to himself. He says, something has more power than I to disturb my slumber. I want to be that. And poof, he's turned into a stone cutter. eyes open and he realizes that who he is is the best is the best he can be he's a stone cutter and I think that a lot of us in life often feel like we're that stone cutter we get frustrated we wonder where am I going What am I accomplishing? What is my purpose? What is it all for? Why am I here? And we struggle. We struggle with these ideas. I'll tell you something interesting. We struggle with these ideas because we have time to struggle with these ideas. It's a beautiful place that we live. In a generation, a hundred years ago, nobody had time for this. But today we have an abundance of time. And we struggle with these ideas because we can. But yet we struggle. And we start coming to conclusions. Maybe if I was richer, I wouldn't feel this way. So what do we do? We get richer. And we still feel the same way. Maybe if I took up yoga, that would give me fulfillment. We try yoga, it doesn't do anything. I mean, it's nice for fun for a little bit. Tai Chi, we try Tai Chi, Pilates, what's the new one they do with the Zumba? (laughs) Still nothing. We try every Mishigas under the sun, acting, singing, gambling, sports cars, all different types of collections. And at first we get excited. And it gets exciting. It's fun for a moment, for a day, for a week, for a month. But then the excitement wears off and we're left where we started. We are the stone cutter. We go and we try it all. We try this, we try that. And then we wonder, well, what? What is it all for? What's the purpose? That's what tonight is about. Tonight I want to talk about purpose. Because if you look... If you look all around the world, if you look at others, if you look at what could be, what was, what has been, what should have, would have, and could have, you're going to find one thing. If you look in the mirror, the answers are standing right in front of your eyes. The answers lie within us. Only I can answer these questions about myself. Nothing else, no one else, not even the greatest therapist in the world could answer these questions. I have the power to answer 
the questions that lie within me. Nobody else. Maybe my therapist can help bring it out of me and explain to me what I'm really thinking about. What is the real you? Who am I really? But really all the answers, everything that we need in life, we have. One of the things that's amazing in medicine is how the body really has a way of being able to heal itself. All that medicine does is aid the body to heal itself. A doctor's job is to use the body's mechanisms of healing and aid them and direct them properly so that they heal. Everything we need is within us. That is a fundamental Kabbalah principle. That we have the power to paint our own destiny. We tell the narrative. Stories don't exist. They're just a compilation of scenes that are turned into a story the storyteller tells. They don't really exist. It's not about becoming a king or the sun or the winds or the mountain. It's about us becoming comfortable with us. It's about getting to know us a lot better. Learning to connect to our inner self, our own soul, and our spirit. Sometimes it's, it's difficult. Maybe sometimes we've covered up ourselves and our emotions for so long that going back and trying to face ourselves is not the prettiest, nicest thing. Nobody really wants that. Nobody wants to have to take something they've been covering up for so many years and now have to go back and face it and deal with it and say, well, what have I been doing? That's not pretty. But that's what growth is. And that, that's what the true, the true inner self, that's who we really are. There was once a king. I don't know why I'm at the kings today. There was once a king who had a princess. She was a beautiful girl, but she had one problem, one fundamental flaw. She was very picky on her dates. Every time the king would set her up with someone, she had something negative to say. This one's not good enough, this one has, the ears are too big, the eyes are too long, the nose is too, they all, she always had something to say. This one is this, this one is that. The king was finally fed up. He says, I want a prince. I want a prince. And in total frustration, he says, you've been dating my daughter. You've been dating for 10 years. The next male who is single, who walks through the door of my chambers, you're marrying him. Well, a decree is a decree. The king said, and so must be done. Everyone's waiting, anticipating. Who's going to be the one who's going to walk through the doors? Suddenly they hear footsteps. They're looking, they're looking, all eyes towards the door. The doors open. And in walks the royal gardener. The gardener. He wants to know what color flowers the king wants on the table for tonight's dinner. Guess what? The gardener happens to be single. They all yell, Mazel Tov! 
The shidduch is made. It's a match. The invitations are going out. The princess is going to marry the gardener because a decree from the king is a decree. The princess and the gardener were married. But it happens to be the king is still a king and he was quite embarrassed about his new son-in-law. So he decided that in order to train the new couple of how to be prince and princess, he was going to send them off to a distant land. And they were sent off with everything they needed, with, with maids and servants and, and comfortable, everything they needed to, to live properly in the distant land, away from the palace. The gardener was actually a good person. And the princess was surprised how good-hearted and good-natured he was, and she actually learned to love him. And from all the guys she went out with, she actually thought to herself, he really is the sweetest and the nicest, and really is good for me. And they lived very happily. But every once in a while, the princess would feel this void, this emptiness, <clears throat> Not because she didn't love her husband, but because she missed the glamour of the palace. The fine clothing, the good food, the amenities, the things that she grew up with, the things that were familiar to her, the palace, the great palace. And everything that really came along with being raised in the king's home, it was familiar to her, she wanted it. And the prince noticed that she was upset so he tried to make her happy. So he'd go into the field, and he brought her a big basket of beautiful tomatoes. And he put up some flowers around the basket and make it really nice. And he would come over and say, Here, my beautiful princess, my wife, I've brought you tomatoes. Perhaps it will bring gladness to your heart, joy to your soul, and a smile to your face. The princess says, thank you, thank you, my dear husband. They are the most beautiful tomatoes I've ever seen. And she's content. But a few weeks go by and the same thing happens again. Once again, she's yearning, she's wanting the palace, she's wanting to go back home. And this time the prince brings a beautiful basket full of potatoes. And it happens again and the next time the prince brings a basket full of cucumbers. The good ones, the English cucumbers. <laughs> Not too many seeds. Until finally one day the princess can't contain herself. And she says, my dear prince, my dear prince, you are a good man and I'm grateful to you. I'm sorry that you picked up on my sadness. I am so appreciative of the attempt to fill my heart with joy. You don't understand my sadness because you don't know from where I come. You're but a simple gardener. You don't, you don't understand how I was raised. I miss the palace. I miss my home. Tomatoes won't cut it. I miss my home. No offense, but stop trying. Enough is enough. I want to go back home. 
The story of the princess is a Kabbalah analogy. It's a Kabbalah story. It's actually the story of the journey of the soul. Our soul, our soul comes from heaven, from the palace of God, from a very lofty, heavenly, beautiful, magnificent place. And it's put into a body, the gardener. And what's amazing about this great princess, our soul, actually gets along with the gardener. They learn to live together in the same body. They can coexist. And the soul sees the body as good. And they live a happy life. On an island far from spirituality, far from heaven, far from what the soul, what the princess is really accustomed to. But every once in a while, the soul misses the holiness. It's sad. It feels empty. And the body picks up on the sadness. And it doesn't quite understand. Why are you so sad, my dear soul? Why are you so sad? You have everything. Ah, oh, I know what it is, the body says. If only you had some more tomatoes. And they go out and buy new furniture. Together, the soul and the body. It works for a while, but after a few weeks, the same story happens again. So they go and buy a new iPhone. And the same thing happens again, so they go on a vacation to Bermuda. And it happens again, so they take a cruise and then a new car. And the body is constantly trying to give it the only thing it knows how to give. Physical, material things. More and more physical, material things. The body is trying to feed the soul to appease its pain. But the soul looks at the body and cries out and says, You don't understand from where I come. I yearn for spiritual fulfillment. I yearn for meaning, for purpose. For innate love. I don't want your things. I don't want your world. I don't want your stuff. All I want is purpose and meaning and you're giving me veggies. We struggle. We struggle with this emptiness. I just saw an interesting thing, that Jews make up 52% of therapists. <clears throat> if, you, if you don't think that's amazing, I think we probably make up about 90% of patients going to therapy. Okay, fine, I gotta tell you this one. So these three mothers are bragging about how great their sons are, right? So the first one says, my son, he is incredible. He's incredible. For my birthday, he told me to go to Vegas. And he paid for the whole trip. And then he said to me, I can take along 10 friends. And he paid for our trip and our accommodations and everything, everything, everything. They gave us money to gamble, you name it. Look at what kind of son I have. A good son. The second one, he says, you think that's good? My son's even better. He took me and 20 friends on a cruise for my birthday. Could you imagine? 
a cruise. It was amazing. It was stupendous. It was fantastic. The third one says, you think that's good? That's nothing. My son visits a therapist once a week. He pays $400 a session. And all he does the entire time is talk about me. <laughs> Do you know that Jews make a disproportionate number of cult members? Disproportionate number of cult members are Jewish. So that's okay. Well, while I'm on the topic, this, this, this old Jewish lady walks into a, a travel agency. She says, I want to go to India. She says, no, 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 no. You're 98 years old. You're not going to India. It's not a place for you. I told you, I want to go to India. I'm telling you, you don't want to go to India. I want to go. Make me a ticket. Don't ask me any questions. Make me a ticket to India. Finally, they make her ticket to India. She flies to India. She gets in the bus, goes to the top of the tallest mountain. Then they tell her that you can't go any further. You've got to take camel for the rest of the way. So she goes on a camel, and she's like screaming and bickering the whole time. She's like, oh, what did they do? What is going on there? Anyway, finally, when the camel is done, they, they, they say you can't go on a camel anymore, only by foot the rest of the way. She finally goes by foot till she reaches the top of the mountain. And there she gets in line waiting to see the great guru. And she's waiting and waiting till finally there's an announcement. It says, anyone who has a request for the guru that's five words or less can get into the express line. So she darts into the express line. And she's pacing back and forth, counting in her fingers, thinking, screaming, what's taking up? Shh. What's taking so long? Shh. Anyway, finally it's her turn. She gets up. She leaps in front of the guru. And she says, Yosele, it's mother. Come home. <laughs> so Why? Why are we so attracted to Buddhism and to Hinduism and to all the world's things and to atheism, all the isms? We're very attracted to it. We're attracted to it because our very nature is to seek. We yearn. Our soul does not let us rest. It's the princess that wants to go back to the palace. So we go around the world looking to try to seek, to find something that will rest, that will help our soul find peace and fulfillment. But if we ignore it, it'll keep Facebook posting, poking us. It'll keep trying to awaken us. If we don't give ourselves answers within our own faith, if we don't give our kids our teens, our college students, answers within our own faith, there are groups out there that are well prepared to give them answers. The prophet Amos, this is in the Bible, he says an interesting thing. I'm going to read you the verse in English and you can draw your own conclusion. He says, Behold, very biblical, right? Behold. Days are coming, says the Lord your God. I speak in the name of God. I will send a famine in the land. Now, prophets often spoke in the name of God, and they often spoke about famines, right? We know about famines. There was a famine in the times of Abraham. 
There was a famine. It's in the time of Jacob. The reason why the Jews went to Egypt was because of famine. We know about famine. Even within Pharaoh had a dream about a famine. And Joseph was the one who interpreted that dream. We know about famines. But the prophet says, this famine I talk about is not a famine for bread or thirst for water. There will be a thirst to hear the word of God. That's what he says. There will be plenty, he says. There will be no shortage of food, nor a thirst for water. Yet we will find no satisfaction or fulfillment. We will feel that something in our life is missing. Now I want to tell you, we live in the most advanced generation ever. Ever. Not only to live in a free country, not only in a world of abundance, but there's never been a time in history like this one, where we had everything at our fingertips, information at our fingertips. If people wanted to study 200 years ago, you know what it was like to get a book? The whole town shared one book. You know what it was like to become a professional 200 years ago? You had to beg. If your parents didn't have money to buy you the materials, if they didn't have money to hire a private teacher. Today we have universities, we have places of, of, of education. Who had time to study? When you were four years old, you were on the farm, taking care of the animals, growing the plants so the family could eat. Who had time to go to school? Never in history has there been a generation that has been so fortunate with not only the access to information, not only access to education, but the ability and the time and the resources and the money to be able to have the time without worry. Kids today can go to school without any worry in the world. Never in history has there been a time like this. Our grandparents, I don't know, all I heard as a child is, eat your food, there's kids starving. I don't know what that means. I don't know. I mean, I, I could, if I want to, I can take a $3,000 flight to Congo, to the Congo, and I can discover what it means for kids not having bread. With my three, with, and I'll take all my fancy gear so I can be all souped up while the kids are living in complete poverty. That's the only way I will ever understand what poverty is. Because everybody I know, if they need a morsel of bread, they can get it. There's enough ways and places, even if people can't afford it, they can get it. We have access. Nobody, there's no child going hungry anymore that we know of in our, in our city, in our place. We live in a crazy time. The only time we fetch about food is when? Yom Kippur, right? That's hunger to us. We live in a time of relative peace within our own borders. Kind of. Questionable today, but let's just say there's still a little piece, a piece of something. We hear about Israel. We worry for Israel. We care about it, but it, it doesn't strike us. It's not part of, it doesn't stop our life. We still, 
we, we, we worry for our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land, but it doesn't stop our life to the point where we say, I cannot survive, I cannot move on because of, look, look what's going on. We still live our lives. Every so often we're reminded of what's really going on there. But it, it, it's not, we, we know it, but we don't understand it. We lived through an incredible time through the 80s and 90s, the fall of communism, without war, it just happened. An incredible miracle. And if you look around the world, you'll see freedom. The idea of freedom is breaking out all over the world. There's, a, there's an incredible idea, a newfound idea within the entire world. Free. You can be free. People screaming and shouting in the middle of, t- of town squares and, and cities, making rallies and protests for freedom. Medicine. Medicine has had many advances. We have a long way to go, but we've come a long way. Think about years ago, diseases that wiped out thousands of people. Today we can cure like that. Technology. Could you imagine telling your great-great-great-grandmother the entire encyclopedia the guy was selling her at the door is right here in my fingertips, and much more. It's unbelievable. The, the access that we have to information, what technology has done with the way we live our lives. A telegram, 70 years ago, today, in a second, for free, no money down. The prophet says, I see this time of plenty, and yet with all the health, with all the vacations, with all the luxuries, there will still be emptiness, a famine in the land, a famine to find purpose, a famine to find fulfillment. And we're witnessing this today, a thirst for spirituality, a thirst for holiness. Even if the macrocosm of the world may be doing okay, our individual worlds, our inner worlds, our microcosm is deteriorating rapidly. Divorce. Divorce rate is higher than ever before in history. We have bigger houses but broken homes. There's drug and alcohol abuse amongst youth. The number one drug in America, antidepressants. With all the luxuries and advances, there's still an emptiness, a desire for fulfillment. We buy more, but enjoy far less. We learned how to make a living, but not a life. We've added years to life, but not life to years. I think, if I can be so humble to suggest, I think this is what the prophet was talking about. We can learn a lot about people from the metaphors they use about, to sum up, what is life all about. I'll give you three examples. Some people tell me, life is like a deck of cards. Play the hand that you're dealt with. Everything is random. 
Life is a chance, the luck of the draw. Beyond control. Things that we can't change. It is what it is. You get what you get and don't get upset. You either have two choices, these people say. Hopelessness or give up. That's the only thing the Greeks left besides the Olympics, is fate. The Greeks left it to us. There's not much left of them. But we got the Olympics and we got fate. Fate is not a Jewish idea. There's no such thing as fate in Judaism. The life is a deck of cards. It's not a Jewish idea. I've told this, I said this last week, I think. When the girl called me up and said, my psychic told me not to go out. You know what I said? Don't go out. Your psychic said, don't go out, don't go out. What's the question? We don't believe in that. We have the power through our choice, the power to create our destiny. We're never dealt a deck of cards and deal with it. We have the power to create and to change. And whatever the choices that we make, the destiny is a result of those choices. Number two, some people tell me, life is like a marathon. Keep running and always come in first. Some people, they can't stop their lives for a minute. They step on people along the way. They'll trample on anything in their path because they have a goal and one goal only, get to the finish line. Win the race, win the marathon. They neglect those who need them most. What can they do? You don't have time for you. I'm busy running. Who has time for you? Don't worry. They barely take the time to see those who are near and dear to them. And they convince themselves that they're doing it all for them. So you can have a better life. That's why I'm doing it. But all the you is saying back to them, is I just want you more than anything else. But the other person saying, but I'm too busy right now providing for you. We keep running and running. And the process, in the process, we neglect our family, our friends, and our lives. I saw an interview with Warren Buffett and he said, everything I did, I did for my kids. I didn't have a moment to see them, but look what I left them. Really? What did you leave them? In what state did you leave them? I want to tell you a story that happened about three months ago. It'd be a tough story to digest. Morning but you see where I'm going tonight. He was a very wealthy man in Manhattan, a very charitable man, a very good man. He passed away. And he left two wills. And he said, the first will 
I want you to read on the day that I pass away. And the second will, I want you to read 30 days after my passing. And so, the day he passes away, they open up the will and they read it. And this top of the will starts, My dear children, I want you to go to my home, and at the top of my dresser, in the drawer, is a little case. And in the case is my favorite pair of socks. I want you to take it to the funeral home, and I want to be buried in the socks. They go to the funeral home. They say, show the last will and testament of their dear father. They say to the funeral home, my father wanted to be buried in these socks. Here are the socks. Please bury them. The Hever Kadisha, the burial society, has a big problem. This man was the philanthropist on which the burial society was named. He gave all the money for the burial society. What are they going to do? He had one last will and testament. Bury it in the socks, but it's against Jewish law. If you know anything about the Jewish burial laws, you'll know that one cannot be buried in anything but shrouds. They, they talk amongst themselves, and they said, really sorry. I mean, even though he is the big philanthropist he was, we cannot go against God and the law of the Torah. So they said to the kids, we're really sorry. And they were so upset. How could you? How dare you? My father gave you so much money. How could you do this? You must honor his last will and testament. I said, your father was such a good man. I'm sure it wouldn't take you long, but a few minutes to put together three great rabbis to decide whether we can do this or not. And so within an hour, they'd convened via teleconference a great rabbinical court. Three great rabbis. One was in New York. The other one was in... Uh, it was in Toronto, I believe, and the other one in California. And the rabbis convened and listened to the children, and they decided that, I'm sorry, it's against Jewish law to bury the man in his socks. They were destroyed, they were dismayed, they had called off, they held off the burial for two days to figure this whole thing out. They finally went ahead with the burial, they distraught the whole time the shiver, all they were talking about was the socks and the fact that they couldn't adhere to their, last, their father's last will and testament. Thirty days later, they open up the second will. And the will starts, My dear children, by now, you obviously know that I cannot be buried in my favorite socks. But my dear children, I did that for you as a lesson. All the great wealth that one can amass in their days, at the end, I can't even take a pair of socks. So my dear children, he continues, it's not about what you have, but who you are. It's not about what you've accumulated or what you have in the bank account. It's about your morals, your principles, what you've given, 
how you've made this world a better place. And I hope, my dear children, as my last will and testament, he says, that I've taught you just that. If you're on the marathon, if you're running the marathon of life, you'll never win. And if you do win, who are you going to step on in your path? What are you going to neglect in your path? The third person says to me, life is a movie. And we are the actors and center stage of our own film. It's not real. It's just what we can make of it. And we dance and we sing and we do whatever we want and we make this one happy and that one happy, but it's all a big show. But that's not life. Kabbalah has a very powerful message. The message is the following. Life, life, Kabbalah says, is about discovering your unique purpose and being true to your unique purpose. Being able to illuminate your surroundings with your unique purpose. Constantly growing. Constantly changing and understanding as you evolve what your purpose is. Ever happens that you dial the wrong number and or someone, dial, someone calls you and they dial the wrong number and they're talking and you just want to say to them, sorry, you're the wrong number. And they're just going on and on telling you a whole story. I don't know what they're telling you. And you just want to say, excuse me, you dialed the wrong number. I think that God keeps on calling us. And we just say you have the wrong number. I think there's so many things that happen in our lives and we look at them and we say, how can this be? How can a good God do this to me? But I think God is calling us. And we just say, you have the wrong number. How do you know when he's calling you? You know. <laughs> Moses. God comes to Moses. He was a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. You know the story, I'm sure. And God comes to him in a burning bush. But behold, it's a biblical word, behold. The bush was not getting consumed. And God says, Moses. And Charlton has to, I mean, God, and Moses says. I meant Moses, I did. <laughs> and Moses says, here I am. And God says, take off your shoes for you are standing on holy ground. And God says, take the Jews out of Egypt. And Moses says, what does he say? You're talking to me. You're talking to me. I'm the wrong guy for the job. This is not my kind of job. You can find someone else. You know God. 
I'm adding some commentary to the story. It says, but this is what the Midrash says. You know, God, when I was two years old, I lived in the house of Pharaoh, and I was a, a baby, the Jewish baby that uh, Batia, the daughter of Pharaoh, found in the river. That was my mother, when Pharaoh made the decree to throw all the baby boys in the Nile, my mother made a little basket out of tar and, and put me in it, and I slid down the river, and Batia, the daughter of Pharaoh, found me, and there I raised, was raised in Pharaoh's palace. And one day the stargazers came and told Pharaoh that I was going to take over the throne, and Pharaoh got scared. So he took two bowls, one full of diamonds, the other one full of coals. You know the story, right? And he put it before me as a two-year-old. And he said, if I go for the diamonds, it's proof that I will take over the throne. But if I go for the coals, it's proof that I'm just a child. And so... I started going through the diamonds, but an angel came and pushed my hand, and I went through the coals, and I took a coal, and I put it in my mouth, and I, and, I, and I burnt my mouth, and from then on, I had a lisp. I can't speak, God. How am I going to go and take the Jews out of Egypt? You have the wrong number. But afterwards, something unique happens, and we've spoken about Moses before in this forum. Because Moses becomes the quintessential leader. Moses becomes the greatest Jewish leader, maybe the greatest leader of all times. Because Moses always knows his place. He always knows he was never meant for the job, but he does the job. And he does it because he's a servant of God. He doesn't do it because he's the great Moses. He's not Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Donnie Osborne. He is the best leader because he always knows his place. His place is to do the job, but do it with humility, knowing that if someone else had the job, they would be doing better because he was never meant for the job. He's just doing it because God said he's a faithful servant. We are all faithful servants. We're doing the job. We know that we're not the best for the jobs. We know that... It's too much for us to handle. The tsuris is too much. I cannot handle. Why, God? Why did you give me all this? Moses never asked that. Not only did Moses ask that, but when the Jewish people went against Moses, not against Dudski, against Moses. <laughs> Moses went up to God and said, if you don't forgive them for going against me, take me out of your Torah. He worked day and night for the Torah. If you don't forgive them, take me out of it. Jonah, we know the story, he's from Yom Kippur, goes to Nineveh. God says to him, save the Jews of Nineveh. And what does he say? You got the wrong number. So he runs away. He gets eaten by the whale. He spends three days in the whale. And then he prays to God. The whole thing with the storm. I'm not going to go into the whole details. You know it. You read it every Yom Kippur. It's one of those stories that every kid knows. So we ask ourselves. No, I'm, I'm skipping. We ask ourselves, how do we fulfill our mission? 
how do we fulfill our mission? How do we fulfill our purpose? How do we unleash our potential? How do we become better? How do we become more fulfilled? I'll tell you a story. Can I tell another story? Is it okay? <laughs> I'll tell you a story I heard as a child. It's called Itzik from Minsk. Itzik has, from Minsk has a dream that he has to go to Pinsk. And near Pinsk, there's a bridge. And if he goes 50 steps to the right from the bridge, there's an oak tree. And if you go look on the, start digging right near the oak tree, you're going to find gold. Goes to sleep again. The next night, the same story happens. Itzik from Pinsk has a dream that he has to go to Minsk. And there's a bridge. And if he goes 50 steps to the right of the bridge, there's going to be an oak tree. And under the oak tree, he gets the, and over and over. Ten times. Ten nights in a row. To finally, he says to his wife, I think you're going to think I'm crazy. But for the past ten nights, I've had this dream. That I have to go to Pinsk and I have to go find the gold. She's like, you're nuts. I'm going to Pinsk. So Itzik from Minsk goes to Pinsk. And surely enough, he sees the bridge, the exact same bridge that he saw in his dream. And he counts 50 steps, and there it is, the oak tree, the exact same oak tree that he finds in his dream. There he has a shovel in his hand, but there's one thing he realizes. There's a guard about eye's distance away. And the guard is going to see him digging for gold. It's not going to be good. So he sits there for a number of days, observing when the guards come, when the guards go. And after a couple of days, he realizes there's a 15-minute gap in between one shift and the next shift of the guards. And there he is. He waits for the moment. And there the guards leave. And he starts digging, 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 digging as fast as he can. Well, guess what? He looks up, and there it is, a big guard standing in front of him. What are you doing? He thinks to himself, well, he's an honest man. He's going to tell him the truth. He's going to think I'm crazy without telling the truth. My name is Itzik and I'm... So he says, I, I, I come here and it starts... He said, I had a dream. I had a dream for 10 nights. And I, there's, a, there's gold here. He said, you crazy man, the guard says. You know, you don't have to go after every stupid dream that you have. I've had a dream for the past 10 nights as well. He says, that's funny. What was your dream? He says, I had a dream about a guy named Itzik from Minsk. And it said that I should go from Pinsk to Minsk. And there in the middle of Itzik's kitchen, I should dig in his kitchen. And underneath his kitchen, there's gold. He says, what kind of crazy thing? How am I going to find some guy in Minsk named Itzik? And in his kitchen, how am I going to even get into his kitchen and start digging for gold? It's the craziest thing. Itzik looks at him and he says, see you later. And he runs as fast as he can. He goes home, he gets home and he takes a shovel and he breaks apart the kitchen. <laughs> and his wife says, what are you doing? He says, that is gold. And surely enough, he finds gold. And so Itzik from Minsk, who traveled to Pinsk, who went back to Minsk, found the treasure in his kitchen. Not necessarily does it mean that we have to go run after every dream. But sometimes 
We have to see things in our lives and the choices that we make as the roadmap for how we live our lives, for how we decide which way to go, what to do, where to be, how to go. We have to see that as our roadmap because if we don't start looking at this writing on the wall, if we don't start looking, if we run the marathon, we miss the smell. We miss the beauty. My, my message tonight is as follows. It's time that we start minding our spirit. That we start looking at the spiritual side. Not just our physical potential, but also our emotional and our spiritual potential. There's something so interesting that happened at the dawn of the, of the personal computer, at the PC. Now it's the Mac. Or, you know, there's more Macintosh computers sold today than PCs, so we can't even call it a PC anymore. We've got to call it a Mac. It's the idea of an upgrade. The computer industry is great at this. Could you imagine this? There's an industry where they sell you a computer. And they say, this is the greatest thing. It's going to make your life better. It's, you have no idea. And then, a year later, they put out advertisements without actually saying this. And they say, whatever we told you before, we got something better. That thing is pure junk, the thing we sold you a year ago. Now, you need an upgrade. They didn't say get rid of it. But as a result, you've got to get rid of your old computer. But they didn't say get rid of your old computer. They just said, upgrade. Upgrade. What we had before was good. But we have put together a tremendous amount of monies and energies, and we've made something better. And now it's time to upgrade. You don't need. I mean, if you have Windows 2000 now, you are ancient. You're a dinosaur. If you have Windows Vista, you need top Windows 7, Windows 8, Mac OS they just announced it today, Mac, uh, two days ago, Mac OS 10.9. They were going to call it the Sea Leopard or something like that, but they decided not to. I don't know what they called it at the end, some other name. My question is the following. If the computer was good last year, why isn't it good this year? Why do I need an upgrade? If it was good enough for me to buy a year ago, a year is not that long. A year later, you're telling me I need something brand new because you came out with it? But the interesting thing is they're not asking you to buy something new. They're asking you a very interesting new terminology that's come into the world that we've become so familiar with that we don't realize is a beautiful marketing ploy. It's called upgrade. Don't get rid of your old one. Upgrade. Oh, it could be that maybe you're going to get rid of your old one in the process. Upgrade. What's amazing about us and what Kabbalah teaches us is that we're not reborn. We are born. And we're exactly the same person that we're born with. From the day we're born, we have not changed. We just upgrade ourselves. There was 1.0, and then there was version 2.0, and version 3.0, and we have to make sure that with every year that passes, and if I'm at version 37.0, I have to make sure that I 
I'm at version 37.0, but I'm not actually 37 years old at version 3.0. I want to tell you a story about a man by the name of George Rohr. George Rohr is an incredible philanthropist. He actually has given, uh, he's a philanthropist in New York who has given money to us uh, to help us in the past, and he has given money to hundreds of organizations all over the world. He's probably one of the biggest philanthropists in the world today. In the 90s, he was very proud. He did a high holiday service that he called with pe for people that had no background. And he was very excited. He had done this high holiday service for Rosh Hashanah. He had over 100 people there, people who had never attended a high holiday service before in their life. And he was going to go to the Rebbe, we spoke about him last week, he was going to go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe to tell him the great news about how he had done this service for people that have no background, and there they were able to celebrate with the beauty and the joy of the tradition. They were able to celebrate, and they thought the rabbi was going to give him this, this incredible sense of joy and pride and spirit. And he comes to the Rebbe. In between, before Yom Kippur, the Rebbe used to give out honey cake and wishing everyone a sweet new year. He used to give, people used to line up by his door and he would give everyone a piece of honey cake. So he comes by, Um, and the rabbi gave him a piece of honey cake and he said, Rabbi, I have good news for you. He tells him the story that he had done this service, this Rosh Hashanah service for Jews that had no background. And there was over a hundred Jews and he has no idea how many will be there Yom Kippur. It's probably going to be double. The rabbi is giving him this stern look and he's expecting this sigh of uh, goodness and, 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 and grace and, and happiness and pride. The is giving him a stern look and he, he almost doesn't understand. So he repeats what he said. He said, Rabbi, I, I did a service for Jews that have no background. The Rebbe looks at him and he says, no background? He says, yes. He says, every Jew has a background. They come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, they have a background. So how do we upgrade? How do we go to the next version? The best, the quintessential version of ourselves. How do we find the inner core, the true peace, that feeling of brilliance and beauty within us? How do we find it? It's not in the synagogue. It's not in the. It's it's not in the day school. It's not in the kosher butcher or baker. Even though we like the bakeries and we like the butcher shops, that's not where it is. Because the most important part of Judaism, unlike any other faith, unlike any other place, the most important part of Judaism, the most, the so sacred, the most sacred place in Judaism is in the home. The home is the sacred part. It's a unique idea. Because the truth is, every other faith has a center. There's nowhere in the Torah that says make a synagogue. It says make a holy temple for God, a home for God. It doesn't say it's make a synagogue. The only place, the only home, central location that every community needs, according to the Torah, is a mikvah, a ritual bath. That's it. 
The synagogue is not important in Judaism. And the idea, the 21st century idea of a synagogue, that, it, that you know, the way you, you become an active Jew in today's society is you become a member of a synagogue. It doesn't matter. It's not, not important. You can be a very good Jew and never step foot in a synagogue ever once. You can be a religious. You can be an a, a observant Jew and never once step foot in a synagogue. Synagogue is not an integral part of Judaism. I know it's strange standing here in a synagogue talking like that. But it's true. The Jewish home is the foundation of our people. What happens when you enter a Jewish home? What's the first thing that you see? A mezuzah. What's a mezuzah? It's a, on the door. It could be on, on the bedrooms, on the kitchen, on the dining room. And the truth is a lot of people are scared because it is an investment. It's handwritten by a scribe. It costs a lot of money. You have to pay the scribe to write it on parchment. It's not just a, a nice little casing that people buy. It's actually a nice piece of parchment. I'll tell you why the mezuzah is important. Paint a picture of a little girl. It's bedtime. And she says, I love you, mommy. I love you, daddy. I love you, grandma, grandpa. I love you, aunt, uncle. I love you, God. She kisses the mezuzah. The mezuzah says, Zisakind, sweet child, you're never alone. When you go to sleep, you're not alone in this room if you feel lonely, and you're not alone in the world. Not here or not anywhere, you're not alone. You're always protected. There's always someone watching over you. There's always a God. And we train our children from early on to know that there's no fear, that you're never alone. Mezuzah becomes an integral part. We call it our Jewish security system. It teaches us what it means to be one with a higher power. If you don't have one or you'd like one, I make house calls sometimes. I'll come put one up. It's so important. It's our security system. It's the testament. At the moment we walk into our home that we know this is a home for a higher purpose. This is a home filled with brilliance, filled with beauty. It's a Dukkha box. It's a Dukkha box. It's nice to give charity. And I know we're all, we all give charity. But there's also them giving charity every day. There's the myths to give charity every day. Why? Why can't I just give charity once a year or and that's fine or whenever someone asks me? Why every day? Because every time we have to be conscious, conscious of our purpose, conscious of what we're doing. Why am I working? For what do I work? 
because I want to make more money so I can buy another car, another house, so I can go on a vacation, take a cruise to Hawaii, for what? For a higher purpose. It's very hard. I think today, whatever, whether it's true or not true, everything that we see or hear, the Baal Shem Tov says we must learn, and it must teach us how to serve God, and how to be, live in this world on a higher level. Our job is to be within this world, but stay above it. The news that we heard today, two elected officials being arrested, has to teach us a lesson. And the lesson is as follows. Never forget your purpose. When you start doing something, make sure you know forever. Remind yourself every morning, why do I do what I do? Why do I go to work? It's not so I can have more money and I can go have a better life and a better car and a better house and a better vacation. That's not what it's about. It's about a higher purpose. If you are entrusted, if you are a servant of the people, I can relate to it. Because I have chosen in my life to be a servant of the people as a rabbi. I can relate to it. If you have been elected, an elected official as the servant of the people, the people didn't even elect me, the people elected them, you must remember every single day your purpose. The reason why you have been entrusted. The people have entrusted you to be their leader. And every single one of us is a leader of something and someone and some place. We have to remember at all times we are being entrusted, whether we're a doctor or whether, whatever, whether we're a lawyer or an accountant or whether we're, we, we, we work in a hospital or we work in the arts or whatever we do, whether we're in business or we're a professional, whatever we do, we have to remember that we are being entrusted with this task. And we must do this task the best we can. With a charity box at home and a charity box in the office, we remind ourselves always, what I'm doing, I'm doing for a higher purpose. What I'm doing, I'm doing to make this world a better place. Now let's go back to the positive, because I want to end off on a positive note. I started by saying that it's an incredible idea. It's an incredible world that today we have an abundance, abundance of books. Actually, reading is in style. You can get all these different types of, of, of books and uh, Amazon, Amazon. One of the greatest, the biggest website, I think, in the, in the world today, books. They're closing down bowling alleys and, start, and opening up bookshops. There's books everywhere. People like, we have access to information like never before. And there's never been a time in history, in history, that we have access to Torah literature, to Kabbalah, to, to books on Jewish topics in our own language. There's never been a place in history. If you speak, read English, you have access to Thousands upon thousands of books in your own language. Today, today is a monumental day as they have finished the 27-year task of translating the works of Maimonides into English. 
all of the works of Maimonides from a thousand years ago, for the first time in history, if you don't know Hebrew, you can have access to them fully. These are books that are at our fingertips. All we have to do is get our hands on them. And they're not one in a million. You can just go click a button online and you have them at your doorstep in two days. Amazon Prime. It's unbelievable. We have access to things like we've never had before. It's right here in front of us and all we have to do is choose to, to embrace it, to embrace the beauty, the, the gifts, and the wonder that we have. Ask yourself, in every hotel room, there's one book. The book. The bestseller of all time. The book. Do you have one in your home? With commentary? So that you can read at any time? It's important enough to be in every hotel room. It's important enough to be in every courthouse. It's important enough to be almost everywhere that's important. Do we have that in our home? Is it on display so we remember it every day when we walk past it on the shelf? There it is, right in front of me. It's on my table. It's there that when I'm in, when I'm in a moment where I need some inspiration, there I can open it up. The prayer book. To be able to pray. Years ago, there was a, a young woman. She was a member of Mensa. You know what Mensa is? She was like a part of this think tank. Brilliant, brilliant woman. Very educated. And she, passed, she came to our home as a child. She, she was a guest at our, at our table. She ended up making a, a huge ch change in her life. And she ended up becoming an observant Jew and took on a, a lot of the traditions. And she always attributed her change in her life to sitting at my parents' Shabbat table that night. And I remember I once asked her, what was it? Was it the food? I mean, you can get food, you can get food anywhere, okay? I mean, it can't be that good that you changed your whole life because you like some kosher food. Was it the songs? I mean, there weren't that many songs. Whereas the family, I mean, the kids were running around. It wasn't exactly a, you know, a, a nice, peaceful, beautiful thing where everyone's sitting. What was it? She said to me, I'll tell you what it was. It was the Shabbat candles. She said, I always knew about lighting two candles in the Shabbat home. My mother always lit two candles. But she said, I saw your mother she lights a candle for every single one of the children. Thank God, I have six siblings, or seven of us, and my two parents. And at that time, there were nine candles. My mother bought a very nice candelabra, and in the center of our Shabbat table, there are nine candles. She said, I never <clears throat> realized that there could be a time, a place where I matter, where I'm counted. 
Every child has a candle. My mother still, to this day, she lights a candle for each of her daughters-in-law and sons-in-law and all her grandchildren. Her table is filled with candles. Even though I'm here in Montreal, and I probably haven't been in Chicago in a number of years at her Shabbos table, every single week there's a candle for me since I was a young child. This woman said that experience changed her life. Understanding that every soul matters. That the Shabbat candles don't only represent an idea, a spiritual flair, a fervor. It represents each unique soul. And every single time a new soul is born into the family, another candle is lit. Because that soul deserves a candle. And every person matters. And the idea that I matter, I think is something that's missing from our world. It's something that's so important. No one, no one can go around saying, I matter. What I matter? I'm just a dim puff in the blaze of the Milky Way, says Mark Twain. I'm nothing. I matter. My deed matters. In the 60s, a bunch of a group of scientists, Berkeley, came out with a theory. It was called the chaos theory. It went like this. A butterfly flapping its wings in Tokyo could trigger off a series of effects that cause a hurricane in New York. Now, I'll tell you, this theory has been disproven like a million times. But I don't care. I like it. It's the idea that a butterfly flapping its wings can change the entire ecosystem. That we, little candle, little soul, little me, I have the power within me to change the world, to change my surroundings, to change my world, and eventually change the world. I have the power to make choices, to choose my destiny, and change the world. To choose my path, my place, and what I do, the choices I make, the things I do, they matter. I matter. I'm not just matter, I matter. If you want to under, understand unleashing our potential, we need to create our home into a spiritual place. There needs to be items that represent spirituality. If it's a menorah, if it's a candelabra, if it's a chumash, if it's a prayer book, if it's a shofar, we need to look around and see this is a home, a mezuzah. This is a home when you walk in that's warm. And if you think about what is warm, what's familiar, you'll see those spiritual items. They make our home from the cold, barren place into a loving, warm environment. I'll tell you something interesting. Every holiday has a smell. Every holiday has a smell. You think Shabbat, what's the smell of Shabbat? The Shabbat food. Hanukkah, what's the smell? The latkes. Passover, what's the smell? 
There's a lot of smells. My grandmother. I don't know why I'm talking about my family. My grandmother is the furthest thing you would think from anything traditional. But there's two things she does every year. That's Jewish. She makes a break the fast after Yom Kippur. She doesn't go to temple or synagogue. She just makes a break the fast after Yom Kippur. And she makes a Pesach Seder. And I asked my grandmother. She's the grandmother that when I became a rabbi, she said to me, what kind of job is a rabbi for a good Jewish boy? This is my grandmother. So I said to her, why do you do this? Judaism doesn't mean anything to you. Why do you do it? She said, this is what I did with my mother. Those are the two things. My mother and I, my greatest memories in my life were making the break the fast with my mother and making the Pesach Seder. Children don't remember what we tell them. When you think about your childhood memories, you're not going to remember what you were told. You may not even remember how you felt, but you will remember what you did. We need to make our home, our lives, a spiritual place, a place where we do, a place where it smells spirituality, a place where we experience spiritual flair and fervor, excitement, Religion. Religion is not for us. We're not religious. We're the furthest thing from it. We don't know what religion is. There's religious Christians, there's religious Buddhists, there's religious Hindus, there's never, ever religious Jews. If you ever heard someone say, You're, I'm a religious Jew, what does that mean? Some they'll say, a Sabbath observant Jew. Not religious. What does religious mean? Because in order to be religious, the, the focal point of your religion must be a place. If you're a religious Christian, goes to the church. Religious Buddhist goes to the temple. Religious Muslim goes to the mosque. Ever walk into a shul? No one's religious there. They're not even sure why they're there. The most important place in Judaism is the home. I want to finish off tonight with one last story, if you'll permit me. I have a friend. He lived in Moscow for many years. Today he lives in New York. His name is Avram Berkowitz. As a student, when we were rabbinical students, he was sent to an island right off of Alaska. The furthest spot north in the world where there are people live. It's right, it's about a two-hour flight from Alaska north, an island. I forgot the name, but I remember him coming back and telling the following story. He said he came there, his, he was a rabbinical student, he was supposed to find Jews there. He searched for two weeks, could not find a Jew. He asked up and down, there was not one Jew, and he felt bad because he had gone there to find the Jewish community, but there was no community. <laughs> there wasn't even a Jew. So he thought the day was the day he was supposed to leave. He goes into the school. He figured one last chance. He's going to go into the local elementary school to see if he can find some Jewish kid. He walks into the classroom. 
And he says, I'm just wondering, says to the kids, do you know of any Jews? So one girl raises her hand and says, I'm not Jewish, but my mom is. And I'll pause a second. Here he is. At the edge of the world. The girl never heard, never experienced. He has a child soul. And we all know the Jewish soul in his hands. He's leaving on a flight in three hours. He doesn't have time to try to figure out what to do or how to inspire. He can't take her email. She's seven years old. Her phone number, he's in school. He can't give out a phone number. What is he going to do? He's got one minute to inspire this girl for the rest of her life. What is he going to do? And so he turns to the girl and he says, I want to tell you something. He says, you are in the last, you are in, you're the only Jewish girl in this time zone. Every other time zone has a Jewish girl who lights Shabbat candles. But this time zone does not. I need you to do me a favor. The whole entire world on Friday night is waiting for your candle. On Friday night at sundown, when Jewish women and girls light the Shabbat candles and usher in the Shabbat experience in every time zone. It's being taken care of and then the light flickers and shines from one time zone to the next as the evening goes on. But then it comes to the last time zone and there's no light. The whole world is waiting for your light. The story doesn't finish there. That girl knew that she had a mission in the world. That young rabbinical student gave her a sense of purpose, a sense of identity. She went home and she said to her mother, we must light the Shabbat candles. Her mother couldn't believe at the ek, as we say in Yiddish, ekvelt, at the edge of the world, she met a rabbi. And the rabbi told her to light candles. The story didn't finish, or didn't continue, wasn't heard of, until a couple of years ago, when she surfaced in New York as a young adult, telling over the story, telling the story how in Alaska, at the edge of Alaska, she was the one who made the world complete. If a little girl in Alaska matters, so do we. We just have to find our purpose. We have to find a way to matter. And if you can't find it today, search, look, seek. Find the place within your heart, within your soul, within your being. Find the place where you can say, I matter. And do it. Run with it and never forget your purpose. 
Never forget why you're doing it and where you're doing it. Don't deviate. It can look like a good deal. It can look like a million dollars. Don't deviate from the path. Don't be blinded by money. Money is nothing. Just another zero on a book. Comes and goes. It's like that. All you have to do is sign. It's unbelievable. Don't get caught into the mishigas, to the, to the nuisance of the world. Don't get caught into the, to the chaos. Find the light because the whole world is waiting for your light. Have a great week. Good.